Our gospel reading is taken from uh, John's Gospel, chapter 4, verses 27 to 42. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. There have been moments um, in the past several weeks where I've wondered if we're ever going to emerge from John chapter 4. We've been camping out here for um, quite a while and uh, working our way slowly through this material, and I'm very grateful for, for your abundant patience. Today I thought that I would work through, and you've noticed that I cut the, the reading short a little today. I thought I meant to push through to the end of 42, but I've decided to limit uh, today's sermon to the opening verses and carry on again next week with the, the latter portion of this passage uh, next Sunday. Um, there's something very refreshing about this. There's something very refreshing about working your way slowly through a book of the Bible. And uh, more and more I'm convinced that this is what we're supposed to be doing. And this, this is called um, Lectio Continua, book by book, chapter by chapter, working our way through, verse by verse, through, um, through the Scripture. When we do this, then it, um, it's, it's uh, far more likely that the Scripture will set the agenda rather than the preacher. We will, we will land um, on those ideas and thoughts that the scripture presents to us, even though the, the temptation to do the latter is always present. Alistair Begg recounts a story about, uh, uh, he tells a story about a, a Baptist uh, minister in the 19th century who, um, who was famous for burdening the text with his pet doctrines, his hobby horse, hobby horse preaching. And uh, on uh, one occasion he was preaching on Genesis 3.9. And after he announced his text, Adam, where are you? He continued uh, by saying, there are three lines we shall follow. First, where Adam was. Second, how he was to be saved from where he was. Third and last, a few words about baptism. And uh, so now the Lord spare us from that kind of uh, extra biblical burden upon the text and help me to be faithful to the message of the evangelist. So let's uh, pray together for the inspiration of the Spirit 
and for his gracious hand upon us as we attend the word. God, our gracious Father, we thank you for these scriptures. They are uh, the, the gift of God to us. Lord, we, we believe that uh, the word of God is the very thing that shapes us, the truth that revives us, the sword of the Spirit that pierces far deeper than we can get ourselves. And so we pray today that your word would have its work, that you would honor it, O God, that you would exalt Christ through it, and that you'd instruct us together as we place our, lap, our Bibles upon our laps uh, under the instruction of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I hope you've noticed the, uh, the beautiful theology of the new birth that John has been presenting to us over the course of our study as we've been looking at John, John's Gospel 1, 2, 3, and now 4. Over the past four chapters, John has been emphasizing the importance of the new birth. We talked about this quite extensively. 1, 2, and 3, 1 in doctrine, 2 pictorially, and then 3 again in doctrine, emphasizing the necessity that to walk with God, to experience God, to know God, it has to be through a spiritual regeneration. We cannot do it naturally. We are born naturally. We must be born of the Spirit in order, to, um, in order to know God. The water has to become wine. And uh, that doctrine has been presented very, very clearly and forcefully over the first three chapters. And now in John chapter 4, uh, it all comes into practice. We see the reality of new birth uh, in practice with this woman at the well. Now we see God at work in his sovereign providence, wooing people to himself and bringing them to a new, a new understanding. Here we see God's saving activity. And it should encourage us uh, to think about who the recipient is of this saving activity of God, this woman at the well, She's evidently despised. The disciples are very shocked that Jesus is speaking with her. What are you doing speaking to this woman? I mean, this is part and, uh, this is parcel, part and parcel of the, uh, the, uh, the era and the, um, the low view of women that they had. Jesus obviously didn't share that. He had quite a high view of women. Um, and uh, he's speaking with her, so, but she's despised culturally. She's on the outside culturally as a Samaritan, but beyond that, this woman is indifferent to God. This woman, as we saw a few weeks ago, is, is blithely following sin. She doesn't care about the institution of marriage. She is, she's thrown herself headlong into a lifestyle that disregards the commandments of God. So she's, she's stone cold. She has no kind of inclination towards God here. And these, I think, are the kinds of people that God delights to meet. People who are actively opposed to the way. People who have no inclination to the gospel whatsoever. Now I admit my, um, my temptation to doubt at times that God in fact can change hearts like these. I have people in my life right now that are very dear to me uh, that are harder than granite towards the gospel. And in my sinful human self, uh, I begin to doubt 
that these are the kinds of people that the gospel, in fact, draws into the kingdom. But the Bible talks to us about these people as if they are, in fact, the ones that God takes most delight in bringing to his son. Think of Paul, just for a moment. How strongly opposed Paul was to Jesus. And then think of how Paul crumples in a moment before a vision of the risen Lord. Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, writes, any farmer can get a good crop out of good soil, but God is the farmer who can grow cedars on rocks, who can not only put the hyssop upon the wall, but he can put the oak there too and make the greatest faith spring up out of the most unlikely place. All glory to God's grace, Spurgeon writes. The promise of Jesus is that if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself, including those who are most desperately, violently opposed to the gospel, or those who just don't care at all. They are as indifferent as a stone. So the remainder of this passage then demonstrates the power and the multiplying effect of the gospel. So she leaves the water jar, she forgets what she's doing, she's so kind of taken by what Jesus has said, and she goes and says uh, to her, her, uh, her colleagues at home, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. The evangelized becomes the evangelist. This is very important, by the way, as an aside. It's springtime, I've been walking with my kids, and. And uh, we've seen all those dandelions about with, with those, uh, those heads that you can either wave or the wind or, or blow in and the seeds go everywhere. This is just what's happening here. The woman who's been evangelized becomes like that dandelion flower. She's blown upon by the Spirit and the seeds of the Word of God now begin to disperse uh, across her, her community. The Word is spreading. But what I want to pay attention to just briefly this morning is the word that she is spreading. Here's a man, she says, that told me all I ever did. Now think about that for a moment. The only thing we know about this conversation, and granted Jesus may have spoken more than we have here in John 4. John may not be reporting it all, but the only thing we know about her conversation, the only unveiling is her sinful lifestyle, her adultery, her going from husband to husband to husband, and then finally landing herself in a, in a context of what the Bible classifies as fornication, living outside of the marriage covenant. Isn't it odd then, if this is the only thing that's been unveiled, as far as we know as the text, if this is the only thing that Jesus has told her, that she's so excited about it, that she's so taken and going to all of her friends and pointing out uh, her very brokenness. Come and see a man who showed me I'm a sinner, who read my heart and life like a book. Come and see a man who knows me and who showed me who I am. See, the gospel doesn't just reveal God to us. The gospel reveals ourselves to us. As C.S. Lewis writes, I believe in God as I believe in the Son, not only because I see it, but because I, by it I see everything, including ourselves. 
The gospel proclaims that we are known, that Jesus Christ, who died for the church as a whole, also died for the individual. This is Paul's point, by the way, in Galatians 2. Galatians 2 is one of Luther's favorite passages. It became very dear to him over time, where Paul says that um, uh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, who gave himself for me. The gospel assures us that we are known, that he knows us, in fact, in the most intimate of ways. As the psalmist, the psalmist writes, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know me when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. The gospel proclaims and asserts that we are known by God in all of our, in all of our uh, humanity. And it's a sign of grace then when we're glad, even excited, that Christ knows us as sinners and reveals to us ourselves as sinners. Come and see a man that told me all that I ever did. Come see a man that showed me I'm a sinner. Now, the carnal mind, the natural mind, never wants this. The person who was born in sin, as we all are, never delights in seeing and understanding themselves as sinners before God. It's, in fact, the last thing they want to see because sinful human nature is always trying to justify itself before God. That's what it does best. No one is better at illustrating this than John Bunyan. If you have not yet read The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, this is something you absolutely must read. There's a copy of it on our book table outside in the foyer. Spurgeon, again, the great Baptist preacher, he first read it at six, and he tells us in his, uh, in his um, confession that he read it over 100 times throughout his life. In fact, it's what shaped him. The, the, the Pilgrim's Progress made uh, Spurgeon into the gospel preacher that he was. So I urge you to, to read it, even though I can't make you read it. Um, but in the, in, the, in the Pilgrim's Progress, we have two traveling companions, right? We have, we have uh, Christian, and then later on we, we have Hopeful. And uh, they're on their way to the celestial city, and uh, they come across a man named Ignorance. And um, in the course of their conversation, it comes out that Ignorance is pretty confident that he's going to get to the celestial city. He's feeling pretty good about himself. And uh, Christian and Hopeful ask him why, and he's why well, I just feel good. I've got good thoughts, I've got good feelings, and these give me hope for heaven. And so Christian begins to dig a bit more. He digs deeper into ignorance's uh, experience, and uh, he asks, well, what are these good thoughts all about? What are these good feelings all about? And he finds out that they're all self-commending thoughts. They commend me to God. So Christian um, is a little bit uh, disturbed by this, and ignorance knows that, and he says, well, you tell me then, what, what, what good thoughts of myself should I have? What should I be thinking about myself? And Christian says this, he says, we must pass the same judgment upon ourselves as the word passes. The word of God says of the natural born person, as Gordy read this morning, 
this afternoon. There is none righteous. There is not one that does good. It also says that every imagination of the heart of man is only evil and continually evil. And again, it says that the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now then, when we think of ourselves like this, believing it to be true, then our thoughts are good ones because they are according to the word of God. And then ignorance says to Christian, I will never believe that my heart is that bad. That, my brothers and sisters, is the state of the human heart without grace. I will never believe that my heart is that bad. But when grace appears in a man's heart, in a woman's heart, then and only then he, she welcomes the searching, refining, burning gaze of God. Come see a man who told me everything I did. Come see a man who made me know I'm a sinner. That is grace. Search me and know me, O God, writes the psalmist. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That is the cry of grace, the same cry as this woman, the same cry that it's present in every true child of God. Search me and know me and show me the rottenness that I may begin to walk with you as Enoch walk and see your glory. All true children of God who experience grace know the depth and the width not only of the love of God, but of the extent of their sin. Paul, this is a trustworthy saying and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the very worst. Paul, full of grace. The gospel then shows us ourselves, is what we see in John 4. The grace of God opens our hearts gladly to God's examining gaze, and we understand that because Christ died for us, that he gazes at, uh, at us in love, to cleanse us, to heal us, to make us perfect. And so then, may I challenge you, my dear brothers and sisters, this week, every morning as I trust you meet with the Lord, will you say, come to your own soul now and see a man that told me all that I ever did? Which is to say, will you pray that Christ will show you your weakness and the glory of his strength? Will you pray this week that God would show you your emptiness and the magnitude and the glory of his fullness? Would you pray this week that Christ would expose your sin in order to reveal the torrent of his love and grace towards you? This is what grace is all about. It's repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ. That is always the model from the beginning 
in the middle of our experience and then towards the end. Have you ever noted that when, when you trace the Apostle Paul's confession about himself, it gets worse and worse and worse? It starts off in the early life. He's the, the, uh, the, the least of the apostles. Um, and then it ends towards the end of his life with him being the chief of sinners. Paul never got over the extensiveness of his fallenness as he never got over the magnitude of God's love for him. And you will never know it truly. You will never experience truly. You will never be ravished by the love of God until you experience and know how far you have fallen. That the word is in fact true, that the, every imagination of the heart of man without grace is continually evil. That is the message of the Bible. So may we not be like ignorance. May we be like this woman saying, delighting in the fact that Christ showed her that she was a sinner. Because he only shows us that in order to reveal his great love. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.